Welcome to Bloom, a conversations podcast about anything and everything. I was lucky to speak recently with Gray Connolly, a Sydney-based barrister, writer and officer in the Royal Australian Naval Reserves. In this wide-ranging episode, Gray and I chat about his life and career, the geopolitical impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, the sharpening of the alliance between Russia and China, and the upcoming US presidential election. We also cover the impacts of the pandemic on Australian society, including the shifting political landscape and departure from party-line ideologies, as well as significant changes to federation and federal-state relations. The interview concludes with Gray reflecting on his faith, the meaning of Australia, as well as his love for his late parents. Just a note that the audio was recorded virtually on Zoom, and while the quality is high overall, in some places it can sound a bit like a vinyl record skipping, which has the effect of alighting words. I've smoothed most of these out, but I just wanted to give you the heads up and also note that the quality of Gray's reflections are definitely worth persisting for. So without further ado, Gray, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very honoured to be here. So you've lived quite a varied life in the law as a barrister, serving in the Royal Australian Navy as a Lieutenant Commander, and more recently as a writer. For our listeners not as familiar with you or your life story, can you please provide an overview of your story to date? So I'm, I'm, I'm from Sydney and I grew up as the, uh, I'll give you the abbreviated version. I grew up as the much youngest of four children of my parents. Uh, my parents were both immigrants. Um, my father obviously being British. And so I, I grew up in Sydney. I grew up originally in Cuss Crag and then in the Eastern suburbs of Sydney. And I went to St. Ignatius College Review, which is a Jesuit school. I then went to Sydney university where I did arts uh, honors majoring in history history being very much obviously from anyone who follows, say, my Twitter account, my great love. Mm. Uh, I also did law, which I was better than I was better at, though uh, perhaps I enjoy just as much as I enjoy history. Um, in my other lives, um, there's a long tradition of military service in my family. So um, I'm an officer of the Royal Australian Navy. I still serve as a reservist even now. Um, though, of course, anything I say on this podcast is purely my opinion, yes. not the opinion of any government, government or government agency or military service that I've ever been in. And um, so I, I went to law school at UNSW. I finished there. I was a judge's associate in the Supreme Court of New South Wales and in the High Court of Australia. Um, I was then admitted. I uh, took some time out of law to serve in the Navy. And I served in the um, East Timor operation. I served, obviously, at sea. I served in uh, the Persian Gulf, Iraq, Afghanistan, and around the Middle East. Um, and so I then, when that was over, I went back to law and went to the bar where I am now. So I'm a barrister. Uh, the writing side, I got into, well, I've always, I've always actually been very interested in writing because I've always been a big reader. And um, I've always been a great reader also because when I was a child, I was actually like a lot of children who are sick, particularly for long periods. You end up finding other uh, arrows in your quiver that you perhaps didn't know were there. And so I, I started to read a lot. And so I really just started to read a lot of history and biography. I've always been very, very interesting in, in, in how we got here. And I've always been very interested in paths that were not taken. So I got very, very interested when I, in my teens and 20s in reading uh, and trying to learn as much as I possibly could. And so I, um, I, I, I very much got into that. Um, but I've, always, I've been practicing law now for uh, you know, almost 20 years and I've, I've very much enjoyed it. And, uh, and I would certainly not want to dissuade anyone from doing it, but... I always had to have something else aside from law to be interested in. So, um, and I always, I always, um, I always wanted to do my part and so, and serve the country. And so 
um, very much the Navy, I'm always going to be very grateful to for, for giving me that opportunity. And um, hope, and I've always really enjoyed that. And I've just always enjoyed writing. I've, I, I enjoy writing and expressing an opinion. I enjoy also reading other people's opinions. And I'm, yeah. I'm influenced by what else I read. On the question of writing and being interested in other people's opinions, uh, I first came across you uh, and your Basset Hound avatar on Twitter. So you built up quite a following with over 21,000 followers uh, and even once, once featuring in one of Donald Trump's retweets. So can you reflect on some of the virtues and vices of that medium? Okay. Um, there are many vices. I think the, one of the biggest problems with Twitter and social media, people say things online that they would never say to people if they met them. And so there's a great degree of incivility on it. And I have a practice which people who follow me on social media generally, but on Twitter particularly know, um, I try and tweet as if my late parents are reading my Twitter feed and I try to always be polite. Even when I vehemently disagree with someone, I try to be in good faith and be polite. And I try not to say anything that would uh, I would regret later. Now, we're all human, we're all fallible. We'll all say things we actually do regret later, but I try to do it as little as possible. Um, I try, I, don't, I do not think I've ever done it, but I, I, I dislike people who swear. I, th- I just mm. perhaps, perhaps call it a certain prudishness that I have. But yeah. I, there's no point that you make that you need to swear or abuse people. If you've got mm. a strong point, it's a strong point. You do not need to lose your mind. And particularly, particularly as you're actually not in the heat of an argument, you're sitting behind a keyboard or whatever. You, yeah. you, have, no, you have no excuse for that. So that's one thing I do not like. Um, I, I actually got into Twitter. This is going to sound like a very strange roundabout way. After I lost, um, after I lost my parents and, uh, another, and, and so on, I, I really wasn't into Twitter at all or social media at all. But uh, losing my parents, um, it's been a while now. And then suddenly things in the news became interesting. So I got a Twitter account. And what came to me was um, when the Edward Snowden defection came, I became very interested in Twitter. I know that sounds a strange reason to get into it. But there were so many lies and so many obvious problems with the Snowden story that as someone with my background, I, I sort of wanted to uh, correct some things to the degree that I could in a, um, I guess, unclassified way. But there were just so many problems with Snowden. So that's how actually I got into it. And because there were so few people online who had any kind of experience or any, and ability to explain things clearly, I guess people started following me. And for some yeah. reason, people just kept following me. I have absolutely no idea how I ended up getting 21,000 followers. The reason why... Um, the reason why Donald Trump uh, included me in one of his retweets was simply because I was having a discussion with a very, uh, very pleasant American interlocutor, Mike Duran, who worked Bush, and somehow this got wrapped up into a Donald Trump retweet about Turkey. So, so, that, so that's how that happened. Uh, the Basset Hound avatar is very simple. Um, I, I've, had, I've had Basset Hounds and, and Spaniels and so on, and the dog is a much, I, I think, a much better um, representation in some respects of everything that just my they're just my uh, my head so uh the <laughs> the basset hound the basset hound in a in a white service cap with a pipe i think neatly sums up uh, a lot about me without having to go into too much detail how's that yeah that's very good and you mentioned your intelligence background and, and twitter so you've obviously um had a background um in the royal australian navy yes. as you mentioned did yes. you sort of elaborate on yes. your military service as an intelligence officer Sure. So I was, I'm, my, my, my specialisation in the Navy was naval intelligence. Um, so that is, I served, for instance, in East Timor. I was on General Cosgrove's uh, J2 staff. Um, I served in the Gulf in, in, that, in that role. I was the N2 for a ship. Um, I've been, it's obviously very interesting. The most interesting things you obviously cannot talk about, but um, the, it's a very, very interesting world. It's a very fast-pitched world. It's a very kinetic world. And um, it's, a, it's a world that is so vital and so interesting and attracts very interesting people. And 
uh, very, very dedicated people as well. And I often say to people when uh, I'm asked for careers advice and so on, I think if people want to go into the intelligence security services, I think we need as many good people as we possibly can in them to protect the country and to protect our secrets and to serve mm-hmm. the country. And I think one of the, well, I think one of the aspects of the Australian government and the Australian, um, the Australian government generally, but particularly say departments of foreign affairs, defence, um, home affairs, and the like, we have some very, very, very good people who work in them who are very, very able. And I think they often do not get the attention they deserve. I think there's a lot, and I think the coronavirus has brought this up. There are a lot of just excellent structures and excellent people we have to meet crises that I. I, I'm not sure people are aware of until they see them and then they see them in action. And mm. we have a lot of very, very good people. So uh, I very much enjoyed it. I've, I've, I've just recently got my defense long service, one of my defense long service medals. And so Congrats. I'm very proud of that. And um, oh, it's, it's funny. People often say, and I actually agree with you. It's the, it's the one medal that you're most proud of because it just means that you stuck around. And so it's yeah. always been a big thing for me and I'm very proud to serve the Navy and uh, the Navy has been very, very good to me. And uh, I, 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 I've just had great opportunities doing it. And, you know, you learn a lot about yourself um, and I've, I've, I very much appreciate the opportunity. I think it makes you a bit more of a unique sort of commentator uh, in the media landscape, you know, having had that service background too, right? Um, I, I'm sure, I'm sure it does. I mean, my one thing is I, I get very frustrated with people at, at two ends. One is, one is the sort of what I call the woke vets demographic. demographic. There's this mm-hmm. kind of sort of edgy, you know, I served kind of, end and then at the end there's the sort of people who sort of can't almost make no effort to try and explain what they do to uh, what I would call the normals and I think if anything I what I try to do is try to make it as comprehensible as possible to people who are interested and and who are curious and a lot of people do not have that kind of service connection I mean in because because my father's British a lot of the sort of um, I guess British Empire militaries tended to be at times a family business that was handed down from father to son and so on and very often you had the same families joining. And um, I've, in the UK, I've got uh, two unders and uh, I've just, I was actually going through some of my parents' effects the other day and I found like the, the photos from when they were, say, at Sandhurst or Mons or whatever. And, and, um, and I, I, just found, I, just, I just found it very, very interesting just, you know, in our family, that was a, that was a big thing. And so like yeah. that was something I really wanted to carry on. And, and my father was always very, very proud of that. And, um, and, and so that, that's something that was, it was very, very important to me. Uh, mm. And you know, in the same way, anything you do, I think police, um, emergency services, anything where you're actually not the object, but you're actually trying to serve some greater good, I think it is a very, very worthwhile thing. I think it's something, it's an ethos we should try and encourage in everyone. And yeah. I think we're a healthier society to the degree that we encourage and we praise that and, and we mm. note that. Absolutely. So coming to your writing, uh, I got the idea for this interview actually after you published a piece called The Geopolitical Lessons of 2020 in which you write about some of the implications of the COVID-19 pandemic for the world order and Australian society. Can you expand on that piece, particularly what you termed the Davos man and why you assert that the Davos man is dead? Uh, I wrote that piece as a, my attempt at trying to, to, to deal with the fact that we face the pandemic. There was an obvious requirement for governments to step in and look after their societies. Um, I have a perhaps more paternalistic view of the state than many people do. I think the role of the state fundamentally is to literally conserve the nation that, 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 that constitutes it. And I think the state's job is to very much step in and help protect the society from harms. So that includes not just war and famine and the like, but it includes a pestilence and a pandemic. And so I took the view that insofar as the nation state would be having to 
uh, reestablish itself and make its presence known. I think I saw it as, and particularly in circumstances where, say, we, we found out the hard way in some areas what what manufacturing we did not do anymore and what we didn't do. So we found out the hard way about medicines we could not make for ourselves anymore, mm. protective equipment we could not make for ourselves, all that sort of thing, because we'd adopted this, this ethos of the, I, what I call the Davos man is it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a derivative of the Davos consensus. This idea it was, and it was very much in vogue in the 1990s. So when I was at university in the 1990s, globalization was the big thing. Um, we were going to all be the sovereign individuals. We we're all going to be free traders. We we're all going to be free marketeers and we're all going to live or die by our wits. And that's great because that's freedom. And that was what it was all about. And it's as stupid as it sounds now, if you lived there, that was a very mainstream idea. I mean, I was, I was one of the antediluvian, I was an antediluvian young man. Yeah. Um, I was, look, I was, in some respects, I, I was as a teenager as well, but I, I, you, could, you could see the obvious problems with that. I mean, there were, there were just obvious problems with that. But there was a view that was very widely held that we would be able to buy off the shelf or I used the joking, um, the aphorism that Amazon would deliver and you would not need to do anything yourself. And mm. insofar as that was Davos Mann's principal idea that we're in this globalised world, this globalised economy, and we could get our widgets or whatever from anywhere. That was just ridiculous. I mean, I always thought it was ridiculous, but I think that's been made ridiculous, brought into stark relief by this crisis. So right. that's why I said the death of Davis Mann. The reason why I, I wrote that piece was it wasn't just about the death of Davis Mann. It was also about the fact that for many people who would say, uh, some people would say more hawkish on China, I would simply say more realistic. Mm. The, 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 the pandemic has really brought into account that all the delusions about, about uh, the PRC I, want to, I always want to distinguish this from the Chinese people, but, but the regime, all those delusions were obvious 20 years ago, but people pretended that they didn't exist. And now I think that those delusions have certainly been brought into a very stark relief. For especially, under, especially under Xi Jinping from 2014 yes. onwards. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I mean it, was, it was very, very clear. I mean, when, when Obama first took uh, power, I can remember at the time, the, the, Chinese, the Chinese were sort of challenging uh, American survey ships in the South of China. I mean, this was obvious that there was going to be a problem with China. And, and I'm not saying that somehow you, you, you have a ridiculously hawkish posture, but you have to be aware that that, that was the view very much they were taking. And uh, from our perspective uh, in Australia, the, Australia, Australia, as far as I'm concerned, Australia will struggle to survive in a world in which, say, the South China Sea, particularly down to, down to uh, where, to Singapore and the Malacca Strait, if that's an area that's denied, or at least is, is one that, has a degree of, of Chinese uh, sea command, we're going to have a real problem because things are going to change. And so I think one of the interests that Australia has, apart from seeing China clearly, is also seeing the fact that so much uh, merchant traffic travels still, even in 2020, um, by sea. And the seas are a global commons. And one of the mm-hmm. things we have great interest in as a responsible uh, power in concert with our allies, such as the Americans, the, Jap- the Japanese, the Koreans and others, Singaporeans, is we want freedom of navigation. We want freedom of the seas. We want everyone to be able to use the seas. The seas are sort of a global highway, for lack of a better word. Yeah. And uh, so I tried to work that into the piece. The other thing I, I tried to work in is that it's it's going to be a, a big problem if we ignore geopolitics because of the fact that the however however sort of Western liberalism conceives of the world, it's not binding on anyone else. It doesn't bind anyone else. No one in Beijing or no one in Moscow or no one in Tehran is forced to think the way that we tend to try and force ourselves to think they, they they and they simply do not think that way um and and it's just it's one of those things that i find intensely frustrating it's one of the reasons why i started the blog and just started writing yeah i found it 
found intensely frustrating that no one was sort of seeing the obvious. I mean, my classic example from, from brutal personal experience is um, in Iraq. The idea, I mean, the ridiculous sort of neoconservative idea is, well, we'll take out Saddam, we'll invade his country, we'll ruin the lives of the Iraqis, who, as much as they hate Saddam, under Saddam could turn on the light switch and the power would come on and, and, and you know, turn on the tap and you know, largely potable water would come flying out. And like, well, we, well we, we destroyed all that. And the idea that somehow they would, they would thank us for that. And more to the point that you would park a very large allied army next to Iran and that Iran would not take the opportunity to attack you it's just ridiculous. I mean, the Iranians fueled the insurgency and they, and they did everything they could in their power to, to, um, to take advantage and to weaken us, which is, we might see as you know, terrible Iranians. It's logical. It's what any great power in history would do. Similarly, in Afghanistan, I mean, the, the military decision to park a very large expeditionary army in Afghanistan, you think about the climactic extremes in Afghanistan, you would park it there, which is, which is adjacent to or abutting uh, Iran, Russia and China think that somehow that they are not going to notice that and they're not going to yeah. push back against that. Now, your argument would be they're only in a mission and what about the Afghan women and we're all trying to do these things. That may all be true, but that's not incumbent on them. They do not need to see that way. So, um, you know, they, they can do what they want to do because they see they're near abroad as, mm. and policing that is much more important than whatever you want to do. So the upshot of the piece I was trying to get across was the geopolitics never sleeps and the pandemic has really, I think, brought into stark relief through medical supplies and preparedness, one aspect. But I think we need to look beyond that, and that is supply chains and how, for lack of a better word, sort of like Western, that. yeah, fuel, food security, fuel security, how, and also how the Western alliance works together. Now, it may be that there are things, for instance, to show that however much money we throw at it, we can never do ourselves. But we can certainly work with the Japanese and other allied nations, the Indians and so on, and, and we can perhaps piece together some sort of solution. But so, I, think, I think we need to treat this as the crisis it has been. I, I, I think the pandemic has been a very serious crisis, I just do not see a back to normal approach working. Yeah, and and you know, with reference to the Western alliance, you you often write about uh, Dragon Bear and the I suppose the China Russia alliance. Is that sort of parlance and that kind of paradigm of thinking something that needs to become common use now? Yes, it is. I I've, I mean, I'm not the only one who uses Dragon Bear. Other people use it, but uh, apart from the fact that I think it's by far the best. Um, the best uh, foreign policy catchphrase, I think, of certainly of my lifetime, the dragon bear, just the imagery of it. Yeah. Um, but the dragon bear, I think, is, this, is, is crucial because China and Russia working together as two revisionist powers dominating the Eurasian landmass is, is a, an enormous problem, particularly when if you go back and you look, say, at the Shanghai organisation, which the, the, there's a Shanghai agreement between Russia, China and Iran and other powers. And it's not yet, it's not any sort of NATO or anything, but as I always say to people, NATO was not always NATO. I mean, everything begins as a scrap of paper. I mean, mm. you know, the, the phrase of the Kaisers from the First World War. Well, the problem with scraps of paper is that like the actual original scrap of paper, the British guarantee of Belgian security, they can lead to war. And I always say about the dragon bear that the Chinese and the Russians are working very closely together. Once you get Iran in, mm. once you get Iran into that, you're starting to have three historic large powers all have revisionist claims against the current order, and you're starting to have really, really big problems. And a dangerous uh, mix, isn't it? It's a very dangerous mix. And can't just, I always say, talk about Dragon Bear, but take a step back. In the case of the Russians and the Iranians, they may actually have some legitimate grievances that you can address. Now, Iran is the principal state sponsor of terrorism. It is not run well, run well. but its people, they are, they are literally victims of the regime every bit as much as Chinese people are. 
And among the Iranians, there are many people who can remember the life under the Shah and who aspire to Iran being a great country under different leadership and a different regime. Mm. And in many respects, a wise policy would be to engage that and try and engage the civil society, which I think is a under, underlaid thing. In Russia's case, the, the biggest problem with Russia is that, and this is just my personal view, is that yes, it's a revisionist power like China, but after the end of the Cold War, and I, I was a teenager when the Cold War ended, and I, I remember the Cold War and then just the way the Russians were treated into the 90s and so on. It, it could not have been worse, any worse than it was. And people like Robert Gates and James Baker, who I have great admiration for, they're two men I have a great admiration for, they warned at the time, why are you expanding NATO up to Russia's borders? We always told Russians we would not do this, but we are. And you're sort of almost you know, poking the bear. And so for the Russians particularly, they feel that there's nothing that they can, you know, there's a lack of trust there. And, and so that's a really big problem because I think of the three, perhaps in the Dragon Bear Iran Alliance, the Russians would probably be the, the least difficult in some respects to, to try and deal with. But the problem with Russia is always, at the end of the day, I think Putin in some respects uh, would much rather be the leader of a, a revisionist country that pushes back mm. than, than it's almost share power in a normalised Russia that was a, na- a large neighbour of other people. I think it's very hard for the Russians to give up many of their demands. And I think one of the biggest problems that, again, no one talks about as part of Dragon, but is just how many uh, countries bordering Russia have large Russian speaking and Russian ethnic populations. Yes. Like and Crimea. I, yeah. yeah, not just the, but not just the Crimea. Ukraine, it's, yeah. Yes. Yes. It's just, a, it's just a major problem. And as, 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 you know, I said to someone when, when the more hairy chested people about Ukraine is, well, what do you really do? A lot of Russians are married to Ukrainians. There are a lot of Ukrainians living in Russia. It's a really big problem. What do you do? to the Russians who say, well, it's all very well and good for you in Australia, which is a very young country to tell us about this when Russia begins in Kievan Rus in you know, the ninth century. Who, who, who are you to tell us you know, what, what, what we do about our country? And so mm. you have these deep problems. It's a bit like Iran. I mean, at the end of the day, you, you can say what you will about Iran. Iran is one of the great countries of the world. I mean, yeah. um, some, someone of my ancestry, when, when my ancestors were covered in paint, you know, the, 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 the Persians were sending the Jews back to Jerusalem to, to you know, under Cyrus to rebuild the walls and so on, and, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah. I mean, you, you, have to, you have to be slightly realistic in how you approach countries. You have to talk to them in a language that doesn't belittle them. And yeah. Yeah, basically your point where all red lines are, but does not unnecessarily treat them in a hostile way. And I think but what, what, the West what, needs a language for that. What, what does the, the modern states, which you've already been at pains to separate from the peoples and perhaps even the cultural... Um, you know, heritage. What, what do the modern states want in terms of, you know, their objectives in global affairs? I think in the case of China, the CCP has to have a governing vision. It's obviously not communism. I mean, one of the, I was speaking to a very, very uh, interesting person the other day who said to me, uh, one of the strange things, for instance, that she's doing with Hong Kong is a lot of the money in Hong Kong that's invested from China is actually PLA hierarchy money. In the sense, right. the question that, that no one talks about is when she is really taking on Hong Kong and really reducing the attractiveness of Hong Kong as a future. Is he actually not attacking one of the things where the PLA's leadership has got its money? Now, yeah. put that to one side, that's an issue for another day. But I think in China's case, it's simply the fact that there, there just isn't a communist vision anymore. I mean, no, no I mean, it's, it's hard to believe, but boomers in the 60s who are really left wing would hold up Mao's the thoughts of Chairman Mao. I mean, it's, we laugh about it now, but they were serious about it. They actually believed that China was a serious communist country. None of them believed that China was a much more serious communist country than, say, the Soviet Union was. And so they took the Beijing line because mm. they had Mao and they, they took the thoughts of Chairman Mao very seriously. 
I mean, it's, it's ridiculous to us, but, but a lot of the sort of boomers, including the ones that went to universities that I went to, like, and took it really seriously, they were really into that. And I think the fact that in China, no one believes in the communist ethic anymore. In Russia's case, I, I take a slightly different view. And I always say this to Bill, if, if Vladimir Putin disappeared tomorrow, his replacement would have almost the same policies that Putin has. I actually said this to, I actually said this, I think I got in trouble with this, actually saying this, but, 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 I, but I say it nonetheless. I mean, if you took the czars back and you, re, and you restored the czars, they would have almost the same, actually, they would have the same policies that Putin has. I mean, yeah. whoever runs Russia, the view from the Kremlin is going to be pretty much the same. And I think, I think it's just an interesting thing because the Russians, the Russians have a weaker hand than the Chinese, but in my view, they play it much better. They just, they just do. I mean, for the Chinese do do hacking and things like that. You know, obviously they're, they're voracious hackers and stealers of other people's IP. But generally speaking, they, they really, as yet, are not really into the military confrontation side. The Russians are very, very good at it. I mean, the Russians are just very, and they're very willing to, they're very willing to um, unleash their power. So in Syria, for example, when it came to bolstering Assad, now um, I've always said in, in Syria, the West will never admit it, but the West was very comfortable with what the Russians did. When, when Putin came in in 2015-16 to bolster Assad and to bolster the regime and to, and to basically finish the war as best the Russians could without the Americans, um, most of the West was quite happy with this. No one will ever say this, but the Russians took care in their own uniquely Russian kinetic way of a problem that the West was very, very anxious about, which was, which was, um, which was restoring the Syrian state. The second point was there was never any chance in Syria, for instance, that the West was ever going to get its way. Assad was never going to go. And more importantly than Assad, the Russians were never going to give up their bases in Syria. They've had them for 50 years. They give the Russians an outlet onto the Mediterranean. The idea the Russians were ever giving up those bases was absolutely ridiculous. And so um, insofar as the Russians have that view of the world and of themselves, even though they do not have the financial resources of the Chinese, the Russians have a slightly more dangerous side to them at, at the moment than the Chinese do. Um, I, I was asked the other night um, about whether China would invade Taiwan. And I, I find the idea the Chinese would invade Taiwan, which I think would be a very difficult thing for China to do in circumstances of an American election year where Donald Trump is the president. I, just, I, I could not believe, I could not think of a more stupid thing for the Chinese to do. Right. I mean, and you mentioned Trump, but how does him as a sort of a strange historical Republican figure change the equation? And and. What would Dragon Bear be hoping for out of the US election in November? Okay, oh, very good question. My, my, my view is the, uh, the Russian and the Chinese candidate in any US election is chaos. I, I, I think that would be the one thing that they would be desperately hoping to get out of it. Um, I, I've always taken the view that, uh, that I, I honestly think the Trump, the Trump hysteria is way overdone. I think whoever is the US president at a certain time will be just be forced into various things that they do not want to do. Um, the saying that always comes, I always come back to with the American presidency, whoever is in it, is the office changes the man far more than the man changes the office. And just the responsibilities of the office just weigh on you. I think in Trump's case, if, if he's reelected, I think you'll be much harder line on China, uh, much harder line. Uh, I think the one thing with Biden, given that he's got obvious problems with his family's ties to, to China, particularly his son, it may actually force Biden to overreact and to be much more hawkish himself, just to prove... Yeah, in, in many respects, Trump has been much tougher on Russia than Obama was. And it was almost like as a way of proving that, you know, I'm, I can be just as tough. And yeah. my fear is Biden might do that because my one thing I counsel with China is I think we should be very obviously want to be firm and be prepared. 
but I'm just not sure backing anyone into a corner, particularly the Chinese, is a smart thing to do. I, I would be almost giving uh, Xi as much as I possibly could an, an exit ramp uh, for some mm. of some of this, because I think the one, yeah. well, I, I just think the one big problem is that no one actually really knows, and no one believes Chinese governments statistics. You're mad if you believe them, um, but no one really knows the state of Chinese finances. And I always, I always come back to this. I often mention this on Twitter. I mentioned it in my piece. China has to feed itself and power itself in a world where it has to buy its food and buy its energy largely in US dollars. Yeah, that just hangs over them. And when people say ridiculous things like, "Oh, the end of the American hegemony, the end of the American empire," I mean. The Americans will most probably, just because of the way America is, it'll most probably be the superpower long after I've gone for the simple reason that it's almost impossible for the United States not to be a superpower. It's, it's so blessed with natural resources. It has such good universities. It has such a, it has so many natural advantages that it can have like a succession of quite mediocre presidents and the country just keeps on chugging along. Mm-hmm. And Australia is very much like that. I mean, we have a massive island. We have every resource in the world. We actually have a very good constitution. We have very good sort of, I, I think, very good institutions that keep the, the, the machines of state running along, really, to some degree, it insulates the body politic from how bad our parliament is. I know that's a, but I, I, like, it really does. And you, you, you often see that in just how the country just sort of chugs along. So, yeah. um, and I teach constitutional law. I often use the joke, the Australian constitution was designed by geniuses so the country could be run by fools, which it often has been. And, yeah. uh, and, and America is very much the same. There's, there's a certain just innate um, uh, strength that you have. The other thing is, I think in history, habit has a huge role in societies. Countries have, that have habits that last through generations and centuries, they just keep on chugging along. So, for instance, I, I, I'm, I'm always interested when people try and talk about, say, the Second World War and the period, for instance, when Britain was alone. I would say, well, actually, the British, the British Empire was in much better shape for World War II, the mere respects for World War I. Um, the whole empire was involved. It wasn't just the small island. Yes, they had Dunkirk. But, Churchill's line, the empire beyond the sea. Yeah, the empire beyond the sea. And, and the fact that the country, the country was geared for, and, and the, just the British habit of just muddling through and just keeping going, because they'd been through the Napoleonic Wars, they'd been through a whole lot as an old country. Yeah. You just keep on chugging along. And mm. America, I always say this to Americans, you're actually, and Australians like this, we're actually not young countries in many respects. We're actually quite old countries. We're, we're, we're continuous constitutional states. That's really rare in history. Most, a lot of countries, a lot of peoples have had to rethink their national and constitutional arrangements two or three times in the last century. Yeah, if you speak English, you've never had to do it. Yeah, yeah. if you speak English as a native speaker, you've never had to do it. You've survived every war. You know, you've, you, may, you may not have done as brilliantly from it as you would have hoped. I mean, the British came out of the Second World War broken and bankrupt and, you know, people like my parents' families and so on. They, they, you know, they, they all had to, even if you're rich or poor, you had to go through austerity. But they all survived. And countries have that habit of just surviving through... Um, through just perseverance and muddling through. And I think there's a lot of that in how, say, the sort of Anglo countries survive and how, uh, you know, you asked me about Trump, how America survives. I mean, America, I, I, t- I take the view with Trump, forget his Twitter feed, put that to one side. I mean, seriously, put that to one side. Trump will be running for re-election with his biggest problem will be the pandemic. But unlike Bush in 2004, he doesn't have a disastrous war in the Middle East to apologise for. Trump can turn around and say to conservatives who reluctantly backed him, you can say things like, I've delivered better judges, I've delivered you know, up to the virus, better economic growth, mm-hmm. I've delivered on things you care about, I've kept us out of more stupid wars that, say, the neocons wanted to get us into. And, and Trump, Trump can easily make a case for his re-election that a lot of people buy. Most, very few Americans are actually on Twitter. They don't really care. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of, it's a, it's a sort of battlefield for a sort of journalistic class that, <laughs> doesn't, that doesn't want to grapple with, with reality. So I just, I, just, I just don't think 
Trump's Twitter or whatever is going to matter one way or the other. Yeah. He'll, he'll either make his case or he won't. I my my counter my counter view of Trump is if I was the Democrats, I would have I would have run with a much stronger um, contra candidate. So say like I would have voted I would have either gone with Amy Klobuchar, who mm. I think's a very normal Democrat who would be very appealing to a lot of say you know, normal sort of Republicans. I think she's a very nice lady. She's very well spoken. She's across every issue. Like. Like seriously, if you're trying to get other people to vote, come across and vote, for you, she's great. Or I would have gone for Bernie Sanders. You, know, yeah. you may, may you may laugh. Why would I say that? Well, you and said he would have won the 2016 election. I, well, I, I would say, yeah. I've always said to people, Bernie Sanders. You can laugh. People can laugh when I say this, and they can say laugh at me of all people saying this. Bernie Sanders is something, and he's been something for decades. He is what he is. In some respects, he and Trump have got two things in common. They are both 100% known. Everyone knows who they are. Everyone has an opinion on them, and they've always been what they are in many respects. And there's a certain authenticity with Bernie that even his worst critic might will have to honour. I mean, Bernie Sanders was arrested as a young man you know, protesting for civil rights. Now, I don't, I don't care what else Bernie says. I'm, never, I'm not going to really go in hard on him because I really respect that. I respect a guy who, you know, went in and protested against an injustice and put his own sort of body on the, you know, in mm. harm's way for that. And I, I really respect that. And I think there are a lot of people, for instance, who probably voted for Trump, et cetera, who actually look at Bernie and say, actually, he's a good guy. And, yeah. and, and so I think the Democrats picking Biden, I just, I just staggered me because as I said at the time, you're picking a guy who's been in politics since before I was born and running against Trump and you're allowing the incumbent president of the United States, you know, the man at the, the head of the American government, to literally run as the outsider again because he's he's against this guy's been around forever. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's just incredible. And you know, with the with the corruption problems, it just makes no sense to me. I would have voted gone for either the club or Bernie, but mm. that's me. What do I know? I'm just an outsider. <laughs> Coming back to Australia and the idea of muddling through as a society, and um, you know, sort of going through a range of different you know slings and arrows of um, outrageous fortune, as it were. Uh, your writing in that piece about geopolitical lessons was explicit about the need for all states, but particularly conservative governments and conservative governments in Australia, to protect the body politic and to conserve its people's very existence. So there's a great line in which you assert the narrowing of budget deficits in the coronavirus era is not worth the bones of anyone, especially of our own grenadiers in scrubs, the paramedics, the nurses, doctors, teachers and cleaners. So can you reflect on how the emergency landscape that we find ourselves in in Australia has brought out that Australian ethic of not leaving behind our most vulnerable? Okay, that's a great question. Um, I, I return to this theme quite a lot, not just in this uh, piece on the pandemic, but quite generally. I, I guess if I had to sort of try and pigeon myself politically, and like every person, I'm a, I'm a mixture of, of very uh, contradictory views at times. But I come out of, I guess, a more sort of older, sort of paternalistic Tory sort of tendency. I mean, my, I often, my, my response to anything is generally, I want everyone looked after. I know that sounds good, but I want people looked after. And I, I see that when you're conserving, what conservatism is about is you're using the power of the state to literally conserve the society. You're, you're trying to protect society and the society. And it's, you're not just about the individual and his freedom. You're actually about the family because that's, that's the building of society. You're about you know, the, the husband and wife. You're about preserving marriage. You're about preserving a whole lot of other things. You're not just about economic person, economic man, for lack of a better word. And the one thing that I think in the pandemic is, I, and I, I would take this, whether it was a pandemic or a depression, I would take this view, but I think the pandemic is going to have tremendous effects for Australia. I think the idea that it's going to end in September is just absurd. I think the idea that 
I think when you have the Reserve Bank basically trolling the government saying mm. you're going to have to keep spending money because the economy is going to collapse, I think that's a message that the government should heed. In respect mm. of that idea of the Australian ethic, I always come back to this, and perhaps it's because my parents were both immigrants and I, I've, I'm always conscious of the fact that, um, you know, I, I was born here and you know, I, 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 I live here. I, I, I love Australia. I think of everything as Australian. Um, I, I think one of the distinguishing parts of Australia is I do think we have this ethos of we do look after each other and we want people to be looked after. And I, I always make, that, make this comment. It's almost, I, I do not want it to sound like a cliche, but one of the reasons why sort of like every young Australian grows up learning about Simpson and his donkey from the First World War, it's not just because it's a kid's story, but because even though we, we're still not really sure what we know about Simpson, there's something about the, this guy going back with his donkey for the wounded and recovering mm-hmm. them and bringing them out of harm's way. There's something about that that represents something about Australia that we all know and love, that we actually yeah. do care about each other and we do sort of share a common Australian life together. And mm-hmm. that matters. And, you know, there are only 26 million of us and, you know, we have to have, we have to sort of look out for each other. And, and, and this, this, it's, we're, we're too small a population and too big a country to do everything ourselves. We, we all sort of need each other. And I guess for me, the one thing that I think this has brought out, and you see particularly in countries like Italy and so on, you have just these heroic people who, who, you know, the nurses and doctors who work with people. And it's not just, it's not just, you know, um, treating the patient, but you're, you're often there in like their final moments of life. And it just breaks your heart what they have to go through. And they've had to go back, with, back into this every day. And yeah. they're, they're, just, they're just absolutely heroes. And frankly, I, I'm honest about it. I, I don't care about the, the I, don't care, I literally don't care about some, some sort of um, econometric mutant uh, trying to persuade me that these are the people, you know, somehow these are extravagant expenditures. They're not. Yeah. And, and more to the realistic point, Commonwealth of Australia is one of the great countries in the world. The idea that if Australia runs a big budget deficit, we're actually not going to be able to borrow money is absolutely ridiculous. We've currently got people desperate for return on money. There's nothing safer than a sovereign. The idea that if the Australian government went out to borrow money at this time, it would not be able to raise money is absolutely ridiculous. It's just, mm. it's just unreal to me. So um, I, often, I often joke with people that the, the ridiculous nature of Australian politics is, and I've, I've said this, yeah, you've got Trump basically putting the pickle halber on and he's basically providing Bismarckian war socialism. I mean, Trump's sending out texts to people. Yeah. And we have, I have, we have in Canberra these sort of dweebs, for lack of a better word, who are arguing over dollars and cents for people who are, who've had their lives ruined. And I, I find it, just, frankly, the smallness of it I find embarrassing. So yeah. I'm for a large response to the pandemic. I'm for looking after everyone. Um, yeah. And I, I've just found a lot of the responses just small and pathetic. And you... you know, this, this sort of, I, I'm, all for, I'm all for ending lockdowns and so on, but the idea that somehow the economy and the society that it, it supported is going to come back, it's just ridiculous. You mentioned you were writing a, an extended piece on grief uh, and I suppose love for family members and so on. Do you think that kind of emotional perspective has provided you with a way of dealing maybe with the sacrifices um, you know, economically and in terms of our, our way of life um, that the response has kind of entailed? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I've, I've been writing, I actually found the whole, I found a lot of the, I guess, the coverage and the personal stories of the virus, I found them very hard going. Um, I mean, I lost my parents a while ago, but insofar as I was younger and it was, pre- it was premature. And um, I, for the first time in my life, I actually felt, I just thank God I was, I was spared this experience. I mean, you have people saying farewell to their loved ones through an iPad and things like yeah. that. They can't visit them. I find that just absolutely horrible. And, and, and the strange thing about, 
the strange thing about suffering and grieving is that it's terrible, but you actually become much more empathetic through it. And um, I mean, I, I know the image of anyone who's sort of like conservative, et cetera, is you know, you're heartless and things like that. It's just not, not the case. Everyone, regardless of their politics, has hearts and they have families, they have loved ones. And it's also why we should all be kinder to each other is because whatever our political differences, we're all people and uh, we're all made in the image and likeness of God. And mm -hmm. so, uh, yeah, we should all be much nicer to people. But when you see and read about people losing family members in just the most horrific way, I just think you'd have to, it's just, I find it profoundly not just moving, but just, you, you just have to, people have to just realize that there are, this will break a lot of people for years. And um, it's very, very hard because we're a society that, and I've touched on this in my piece, which I'm still refining because it's very, very hard and it's very, very personal in my case. Um, we're a society that I think doesn't like to talk about, about um, hardship. Yeah. I think death, death or hardship. I mean, I, we, we're a society that doesn't like to talk about imperfection. I mean, the facts are, you're not always going to be living your best life. You're not always going to be wellness. You're not always going to be happy. You know, a lot of life is unfortunately hard and it's going to be hard going. And you're going to need people through that. And you're going to need people to understand that. And having been in circumstance where, um, particularly with grief, it's very, very hard. And it's particularly hard when you have no one to sort of help you through it. It's, and no one really understands it. It is very hard. And I think we're going to have to, as a society, realise there are going to be a lot of people who are very, very scarred by this experience. Yeah. And um, I, I mean, I often tell people this story that um, when I first got back from the Middle East, um, I had real trouble with my hearing and I, I found it very, very hard. And my late parents were very good about it and uh, were quite understanding, but I found it very, very hard. And so um, I'm, I, 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 I found it just hard, hard people. So, I would go to things and I would just struggle to hear. And I just started to, you know, it sounds kind of strange. I just developed, I guess, a great, greater degree of empathy than I think I'd had before. But just a lot of people's lives are hard. And, yeah. and, and not everyone has what you have. Not everyone can survive the way you do. So I guess one of the things that comes out of me at times is this assumption, going back to what I said about the death of Davos, man, not everyone is a sovereign individual. Not everyone is going to be a war winner. A lot of people's right. lives are going to be, a lot of people's lives are going to be what you think of as plotting. Yeah, they just are. And, and you, they matter. Those people matter too. They, they have their rights to life. And we sort of all got a, it's the cliche about we're all in this together. We actually are all in this together. And, and we have to have a country in which everyone feels that they not just matter, but, but, that, but that they will, that if they fall in hard times, they'll be looked after. And yeah. the one thing that just frustrates me to come back to my line about the sort of economic, econometric mutants and the sort of, the sort of bow tied dweebs and the like is that, is that I almost think you need to suffer more because it's just, it's clear to me that you must've had an incredible life free of pain and suffering for you to feel this way. Because there are the one thing that's scarred in my mind, I, I don't know about you, but the one thing that's scarred in my mind from this experience, that site, the day after there were mass layoffs and people lining up outside Centrelink. Yeah. Quite apart from the public health violation, you had massive, talk about super spreading event. You had people lined up in short proximity to get in to register for unemployment. But the worst thing I, I hate about it, these were all people who lost their, it was not their fault. It was not their fault. They all lost their jobs and they were made to line up outside like they were the, they were the guilty people. Yeah. And it absolutely, and if you talk about diversity, there was someone from every background there. And I think for a lot of people, you would have known people in that circumstance who'd lost mm -hmm. their job. They'd lost that security that comes from having a job. And they lost most importantly, the dignity of work. Like the fact 
that you get dignity out of it. It doesn't matter what you do, but, but if you're doing something and you're contributing, you have dignity. And they I suppose that. it's unintelligible to a degree, you know, why all this is happening. And it in comprehension to, you know, virology in itself, but also the public health response is something that's completely uncharted and, you know, unintelligible for a lot of people, yeah. you know. Just I, that, that's absolutely true. But just the sense, I, I, I was looking at it more, less that, you're absolutely right, you, your point's absolutely right. But it was less that than the sort of political sense of actually millions of Australians are hurting right now. They're hurting badly. They need to know that they're going to be looked after. And yeah. they need to know that, in this country, we do not throw people to wolves. Like I come back to the Simpsons talking. We yeah. look after each other and we look after people and we don't throw people to the wolves. We look after people. And, and I keep coming back to this. If people think the financial cost of whatever program the government's running at the moment is large, the cost of a prolonged and deep recession, not just financially, but on families, on, on breadwinners losing jobs, on marriages that will break up, children that will lose schooling and the like, the societal consequences will go for decades. I'm, Fortunately, insofar as being the youngest child of older parents, I, I got to speak to grandparents who went through the depression, and um, and you know, uh, and I, I'm not going to try and I, I have no cloth cap story. My my grandparents on either side were very very well off, so I'm not pretending. Either. But even very very well off people during the depression noticed how bad it was, and very very well off people in the depression said, actually, this is terrible. We can never let this happen again. We yeah. can never. This almost broke our society. We can never have have this happen again. And I think about this virus, just that side of so many Australians, they had done nothing wrong. They, all they had been in really their greatest problem was that they were in casual or at will contracts with employment and they're all just cut away. And the government for days had nothing to say to them. And I thought that was just absolutely appalling. So, but I think um, the, a really interesting point on that is that, you know, this has been driven by uh, Liberal National Party and Conservative government in Australia. Um, and so I think Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg in their responses have really up upended a lot of kind of um you know norms um in terms of right of center political movements um so could you sort of reflect on that um given you've you know written yeah. obviously a lot about conservatism in australia yeah morrison morrison i think has josh i think is a work in progress so i'm not sure um mm. josh i i i i i can actually see virtues in everyone in politics for the most part on either side um josh though josh i really like as a person but i've, I've met him i mean met him once but he seems like a nice person. The one thing Josh will always have against him is he's kind of the ex-political staffer. And I have a, I have a great dislike of the ex-political class, class as a class of people. Mm. Look, a lot of ex-political staffers are some of my best friends. So um, as individuals, they're wonderful. But as a class, I find them just a bit tone deaf. Mm. And I think just a bit addicted to, say, spin and the issue of the day and that kind of thing. Um, but Josh is nice. But Morrison, I think, has got that. I think Morrison's realised the economic dimensions. I think, it's, I think it's less something about being a, a, um, a treasurer like a former treasurer or whatever. I think it's less to do with that than it is to do with um, just, I think Morrison himself would be very aware. He's a, he's a yeah, MP for a very, very normal part of Sydney. And, you know, um, he and his wife, I think, uh, have yeah, a very solid group of friends and the like. I think perhaps he gets it in that respect. I think um, there is an element in which for anyone, you know, a crisis means that the usual rules go out the door mm. and you have to, and you have to sort of, yeah, even if you're completely opposed to deficit spending or whatever, it's just something you have to wear. I think the bigger, the, where the real debate will come will be later in the year when um, there'll be pressure, say, from the more smaller liberal wing of the party to wind back support. And there will be an obvious pushback by uh, people, particularly, say, from rural or regional areas where things have really, they've really suffered and there needs to be support. So I think the battle on the right, at least, is to come. I, I mean, I, I, on the Labor side, I'm not sure what would happen there. Um, but... You know, I, one of the reasons why I, I, I sort of tend to write, I guess, on sort of 
or conservative things is that in the Australian political firmament, there are millions of voices on the left, on all, var- all variations of the left, there's millions of voices. And you know, they, they speak. On the right, it's, it's a really big problem in Australia because uh, you, have, you have just a few very loud voices who I'm not sure represent really where most sort of conservative with the small C people are. And so you know, most people who are on the right, I guess, politically, they're not IPA people. They're not, they're not no. rabid free marketeers. They're not, they're not against anything on climate change. I mean, they're just, they're most, the biggest problem I think most people on the right have with climate change, particularly the push about renewables, is the obvious governance problems with governments funding subsidised electricity projects. I think there's an enormous problem with that. I've always said to Greens, I said, if you want to get 90% of, say, conservative type people on board, I said, and you want a carbon tax, use it to fund transfer trans, uh, to the um, transition to nuclear energy. And if you say, look, I, I don't like nuclear energy, well, then your issue is not climate change. Your issue is, I mean, yeah. because I mean, I, I, to me, the case makes itself. I've been to France. I mean, French basically run on nuclear power. I think there's a lot, a lot of very good reasons for why a country like Australia should want nuclear power at zero emissions and the like. But that's that's by the by. But I'm saying there are a lot of things on the right where people are not as dogmatic as you would think. I mean, um, one of one of the great regrets. Um, for many of us of the sort of who are on the right generally the broad right is just the, the push into like fringe issues i mean the the whole issue about the racial discrimination act i mean can you imagine exhausting your political capital which is always scarce on on amending the racial discrimination act so yeah, the, yeah. i just i just staggered with that i i've got i've got a lot of very conservative friends not one in a hundred ever have mentioned that to me and and and, and the, the strange thing is in australia it's the sort of conservative side of australia I know that there are loud voices, but the actual conservative people come out of like, you know, surf lifesaving clubs, RSL yeah. clubs, the football clubs, you know, church groups, church, yeah. church, church groups, which is kind of you know, where I've sort of, I've got a lot of friends and, uh, and so on. I mean, that's it is overtaken. It is overtaken by, you know, I, I sort of call them political fetishists, you know, who have those yes. in the IPA yes. groups. Uh, yes. Sort of but str- really but specific issues. Yeah. That's right. But it's, but it's really, really or a Freeman strange. textbook or whatever. Yeah. That's right. Like it's just, it's just strange. Like it's, and the strangest thing is most people who are sort of conservative, you know, in that, I mean, that small C sense, not anything, but that's more, it's kind of an instinct born of, you know, you grew up with your family, you like what, you know, you think what you've got, you, you've done is good and, you know, you like the country and you want to sort of conserve it. You want to conserve that. You want to conserve the best parts of it. You want to change the things that are bad, but you want to conserve that. And it's kind of a natural human instinct and you're playing to that. Yeah. But when, when you're saying like everything is about, quote unquote, my freedom, I mean, there's no such thing as, you know, sort of, you know, my freedom, quote unquote, and it doesn't have any limits. We all have limits in our freedom. I mean, you yeah. and I talking now have limits on what we can say. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, you and I, when we step out, you know, we can't drive the wrong side of the road. There, there are limits on your freedom and they're sensible for the protection of other people. And that's, that's not because, you know, either of us is advocating for you know, communism. It's just, it's just the natural thing that we've found over time works. Our society works best when we're all sort of considerate of each other and each other's needs. And, and I, I, I guess, I guess it's just one of those things I just do not get. And so, probably makes me a little bit of an outlier among people who commentate on politics, but certainly doesn't make me an outlier, I think, among people who actually sort of share my political philosophy. In Main Street, yeah. And so you mentioned conservatism um, and, you know, conserving what is good in the body politic and our, our political and societal structures. But obviously we've gone through quite a radical shift in the way in which um, politics operates in this country, not just internally in the Liberal National Coalition, um, but also federal and state relations. So I'm wondering what kind of longer term changes to federation there will be as a result of this crisis. So for instance, COAG being made redundant by the streamlined national cabinet or 
the enhanced authority and role of state governments, you know, to a degree which didn't occur during the uh, Black Summer bushfires recently? Okay, that's an excellent question. I, I, think, I think the National Cabinet and, and the greater integration of federal and, federal and state leaders, I think is a great thing. I think, I find it strange we're all surprised by that model working, where even in America, the president and the governors of the various states will often have conferences. And they could be president and governors who are warring in public, but they'll often meet in private to do things for their states. Right. I think in our system where we've got six state premiers and one prime minister, there's no reason why the national cabinet just cannot continue. I, I think it's a very, very good model. I think, can I, can I be honest? I think it forces everyone to sit down. It's behind closed doors. They're on like a video conferencing or whatever. <clears throat> they can all be reasonable and they can all talk about things that are problems. I mean, um, there may be in say six months time, a really big discussion between federal and state governments about revenues, about both of them having suffered a dramatic loss of revenues and how, how we go about raising money for spending that's just going to have to happen. And, and so there may be, these may be decisions and discussions they want to have offline or sorry, in the privacy of the conference format. And because they're from contesting political parties, it may just be easy that you keep the national cabinet model going. I mm. actually, I'm a big fan of it. I think, I think most Australians like the idea of their prime minister of whatever party dealing with state premiers of whatever party, like they are adults and also like adults who will be held responsible. I think one of the biggest problems in Australia, and I think there would be almost no one who disagrees with this, is we've often had a poor quality of people, not just in, in parliaments, but particularly state governments. And I think yeah. this, by the prime minister sort of meeting with state premiers and almost holding them accountable, it's a spur to states to have take their governance much more seriously. To lift their standards. So, but you have been critical of modern Australian politics um, and the political class and Christopher Pine in particular, uh, since Howard left the scene in 07. But just to go back to your earlier point about suffering and how that makes you a better person and, I guess, being tested in, in crises and so on, um, do you see this pandemic in a way as sort of maybe spurring on the Australian political class at federal and state levels to higher standards? Yeah, but also would love it if you could reflect on the paucity of um, um, good politicians to date. Um, very good question. I, I, I think, uh, from my perspective, there's been a, um, I think this has been, a, a, I guess, a certain sort of a shock test of the, the governing institutions and structures. I think it's also been one of the political class. I think every Australian has been pleasantly surprised as by the sight of the Prime Minister and the Premiers all working together. Um, and, and I think most, pretty much all of us would hope that would continue. Um, in terms of in terms of my particular grievance, the one thing that I just cannot stand, and, and I, this often comes out if I'm on the drum or something, because I, I it really does annoy me, is just the sight of former politicians cashing in on their office. I, I absolutely loathe it. I think if you, if you held any sort of um, high government position, not just in, say, like parliaments and cabinets and the like, but also, say, in government departments, the military, whatever, I think you should be... I think there should be a restriction on what you can do after that. I think the idea that you should be able to trade off that office and you should be able to basically become lobbyists and so on, I think it's, I think it's hideous. And I think it, it, it sends a terrible message to the public. Um, it also means that you, as a class of people, cannot turn around and ask people for sacrifice. It makes it that much harder. If you've not lived sacrificially, if you've sort of looked at uh, going into parliament or the like as a meal ticket, ticket to, to, riches. A, yeah. to a better job, then you're going to be in no position to ask sacrifice of other people. So... I'm a strong believer in people going into politics from doing something. I, I actually, I genuinely do not care what they do, except if they're lobbyists or staffers. That's what will raise my hackles. But, but, but as long as they've done something, they go into politics, do whatever they do in politics, and then leave. Go back to a normal job. I think 
I'm a great fan of uh, the Roman model of uh, King Canardus. You know, he was a farmer, went to save Rome, and as soon as Rome was saved, he went back to his farm. I think the King Canardus model, uh, people can laugh at the sort of romanticism of it. Mm. It actually is the model that enabled them to survive until the corruption of the first century and what the first century BC, what did that lead to the rise of Caesar? And mm. my great fear is that if you have an entrenched political class that's corrupt, the, the response is almost nine times out of ten, not reform, it's the destruction of the system itself. Yeah. So I always say to people in the political class, because some of them are my friends and they know that I take great pleasure in abusing them about it, is because um, uh, this is actually anything to do with corruption, I think you're perfectly fair to abuse people about. But mm. um, I, I just think, I don't think they understand the cancer that they let loose. The toxicity of corruption, of insiderism particularly, is immense. And I think anyone with a reasonable grasp of history realises that once institutions are corrupted, once they are viewed toxically by their people, you're the just rot a, sets in. Yeah. The rot sets in. And I always say that, you know, I, I, during 2016, I made the analogy repeatedly at the time about Trump's appeal and the Therian push on Rome. And I always say this to people, it wasn't any great merit of Caesar's. It was that Caesar was pushing it at an open door. People were fed up with the establishment. They were fed up with the corruption. And they took the view that anything could be better than the, the, than the, than the present. And so Caesar was always pushing it at an open door. And in some respects, in 2016, Trump was pushing it at an open door. I mean, you had you had massive insiderism and the fact you have multi-generational families in politics and the like. You, you, you just need to have some sort of commitment. And by the way, I'm speaking to you from New South Wales. New South Wales has an entrenched problem with political corruption on both sides. I mean, we just have a corrupt culture. And it's a really, really big problem. I mean, uh, you know, we have ICAC in New South Wales for a reason. I mean, mm-hmm. and it's never not busy. You know, I always say to Bill, ICAC is never not busy in New South Wales because we've got this corruption problem. And corruption's insidious. It has a terrible... Uh, effect on your population, a terrible effect on the rule of law, and it stops people from believing in their institutions. It's terrible. So, um, insofar as this event has been a wake-up call that we need better and more honest and more uh, thorough and, more, and people of more integrity, then I think it's a good thing. Yeah, cool. Um, so, coming to your political views um, of right of the right of centre sort of state of politics in Australia, it might seem like a bit of a throwback now and life several lifetimes ago, but you've long been particularly critical of the uh, government led by Tony Abbott. So I'm, I've always been perplexed by this as a, as a casual observer of your Twitter feed, uh, given that you, you and he seem to share so many similar beliefs. So in constitutional monarchy, a more compassionate form of conservatism, as you've espoused through this interview, and a respect and love for blue-collar workforce, as well as obviously a Catholic background. So where did Abbott go so wrong? Well, I mean, it's not just that. Tony Abbott and I share a school. We both went to the same school. I mean, decades mm. apart, but we both went to the same school. I mean, I, I, have, I have great fondness for Tony. I, I've, I've met Tony on a few occasions. He's a very nice person. He's a very civic-minded person. I mean, a lot of the attacks he got were just ridiculous. I mean, he was a volunteer firefighter while prime minister, and he, he did his surf patrol um, for his surf lifesaving club. He was a very giving person. That, mm. that part of Tony I, I really liked. And we both went to a Jesuit school. The idea of the Jesuits is a man for others and, that you, and things like a faith that does justice. I mean, that's a big part of Jesuit ethos that you grow up with. And so there was that part of Tony that I liked, but what I just could not understand is uh, there are very few people who ever get to be prime minister of the country. It's a great honour and, and it carries with it great weight. And what I could never understand uh, with Abbott, as he must have known about quote unquote conservative traditions, is that when he was in office, he sort of borrowed all this, this sort of language from like the, I guess what I call broadly the, the IPA types. And, and, and that's just, that's not your game. And so the side of like Abbott going to, you know, talk about repealing 18C and all, I mean, all this stuff that just isn't front of the conservative mind. I mean, it's a smaller liberal obsession. Like you know, the idea that you have the right to be a bigot is actually a smaller liberal. The idea is you're free to say what you want, freedom of speech, you know, 
uh, I defended the right. That, those are all small L liberal ideas. They're not conservative ideas. Conservative ideas are actually the society comes first, the national family comes first, and yes, to keep the national family together, there are some things you don't you don't say. There's some things you don't talk about. Yeah. That really annoyed me, and it, it, it annoyed me particularly is there are other things that Tony did that were good. I think Tony had very good instincts on reconciliation. I think Tony, you know, Tony, he'd go up and teach um, in indigenous schools and the like. No, he didn't, no publicity, he'd just go and do it. I Wake a lot about him yeah. respect. And so yeah, so there was a lot with Tony. It was just he had a great opportunity, which he just blew up by trusting in people that he should never have trusted in. I mean, he, and he trusted in people like Christopher Pine and yeah, that he's got nothing in common with. Like you, you need to pick better friends. And I, mm-hmm. I just think he, I just think he got the worst advice. So it's a tactical matter, it's a philosophical matter. I also think I've never been, I've never been a prime minister, but I think if I, if I lost 39 votes to an empty chair in a party room ballot, mm-hmm. I would probably change course. That's just me. And yeah. like, just, 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 it just it was just it was just hard going and and the thing that just annoyed me it just annoyed me the the sort of prattling off of sort of zombie howardism and it, it just made no sense to me at all because the one thing abbott did get right abbott warned as i understand abbott warned howard that when you go down the work choices path you're going to lose like you're going to destroy your appeal to a huge swathe of people that put you in this office and howard for whatever reason did that and uh and so Abbott's instincts were good, but he just he, he just didn't know when to when to actually be. So I think he always felt like almost like an imposter that he had to sort of borrow a lot of the Peter Costello cant. And he never realised there's a reason why Peter Costello never made it to being prime minister because he believes all that. Like I think Costello believed all that sort of classical liberal nonsense. Like I think Costello believed all that, and I I never really understood why Abbott felt the need to do it. It's almost like he wasn't confident who he was. And so. I think, you know, if you get to the age he was at when he became Prime Minister, you should know who you are and what you really believe. And yeah. I think it was just the problem of we've had that Abbott in some respects wasn't the outsider. I always point out to Bill, Abbott was a Remainer with Brexit. He wasn't a Lever. He was a Remainer. Really? He, okay. he actually, yes, yes, he wasn't a Lever. He was a Lever afterwards. And, you know, mm. the French, the French, the, the derisive French phrase of, yeah, resistance fighter post-war came to mind. I mean, yeah, everyone yeah. after the war claimed to be a resistance fighter. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just one of those things with Abbott that I found very, very frustrating. Look, he's a lovely person, and and, I, and he actually is a good person. I mean, Julie Gillard's like that. Ironically, they're both quite similar in some respects. Julie Gillard's a very nice person. And I, I actually, I think one of the worst things that Abbott did, and I think being untrue to himself, is he went very, very hard on, on her, who he actually knew quite well. And I, I think she's I think she's a very nice person. I think she carried herself with immense dignity since leaving office. I wish, has, all yeah. our, I wish all our ex-Prime Ministers would follow Howard and Gillard's model of ex-Prime Ministers conducting themselves with some propriety, because I just embarrassing um yeah but, but that's just my view so so the point point being is that abbott sort of wasn't true to himself if you grew up if you grew up catholic and conservative if you grew up in a certain tradition it goes back to literally the original tories the ones who who were around james the second and who fought for the stuarts and tried to keep so i guess the sort of scotch irish model of monarchy together which was clan based and family based and we you know, our ancestral enemies were the whigs the small liberals the individualists and so they're up they're <laughs> our mortal the enemies house, yeah yeah, yeah they're, they're our mortal enemies and um and Abbott, in a sense, never really knew who he was or what he was about. And I found, just found that so strange for someone who, who, in some respects, I share a background with. And I just thought, gee, from a very young age, you learn this, you know, the, you know from mm-hmm. uh, your, your mother's knee, learning about the martyrdom of Mary, Queen of Scots. You know, you learn about this. And you know, Abbott always disappointed me in that regard. So, look, that's all in the past. But, uh, but he, he kind of to say on the one side, because I want to say something positive, he does give a lot to his community. I think that's great. I think more ex-prime ministers should do that. Yeah. There are a lot of community organisations that need patronage and need help. Ex-Prime Ministers who are paid a pension, who've got time on their hands, get off Twitter and go and help people. So that's Absolutely. My Would you ever run for office? I mean, given your background and interest in politics and history and things? Um, I, I would never shut the door on it. Um, I'm not quite sure how I would go about it. 
I'm not a particularly partisan person. I'm not a member of any political party. I struggle in political parties because I've, I've, I struggle to pretend to believe in things that I think are stupid. And I struggle to respect people who I think are idiots. So mm. um, I'm not, I don't know how well I would do. Uh, to be honest with you, there was part of me that always liked one thing with Malcolm Turnbull. And that was that just Malcolm was never seen to be interested in politics particularly well. Like he wasn't interested in campaigning. He wasn't interested in all that. Mm. And look, some people say, well, that's why you're not a good politician. It is, but it also what made him, I found him a very interesting person. He's just, he never seemed to be that interested in the political side. And, I, and I res- part of me just really respects that. Like he was yeah. a guy who achieved in his life. He was a very interesting person. Malcolm Merritt is a very genuine race man. Um, and Malcolm just didn't really care for it. And I, part of me kind of really respected that. Yeah, mm. it, was almost a, it was almost a 19th century quality to Malcolm. I'm just really, well, here I am. You can vote for me or not. I really don't care. You know, and I, part of me kind of wishes we had more politicians who were like that because I think he was genuinely interested in public affairs. He's yes. just not that interested in politics. And I, I, I quite like that because a person like that you can actually reason with, you can, you can discuss things with. I think Malcolm went about the, the climate change thing the wrong way. I think, uh, I think he needed to have much broader consensus and he needed to have something which would show a transition to some brighter future than just all of us paying subsidies. Uh, I, think, I think that was his problem. But I think Malcolm himself was a very, very interesting guy. And I, I would hate to see him going as many we don't have interesting people in politics because we have, we, have car, we have just so many people who are exactly the same on both sides. They're all ex-staffers. Carbon copy, yeah. Yeah, they're all ex-staffers. They've all done the, the, the numbers. They've all done this. None of them have an original thought in their, in their brains. And none of them are capable of leading at all. And, so and, no, and, and student politicians, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, and, yeah, that's right. And for, for, you cannot, for twenty years, just be on repeat of whatever you were told in student politics to believe, whatever you, were, and then suddenly become your own person. You, mm. you know, the 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 you know, in the sense, the child is the father of the man. I mean, you know, the the idea that somehow these people are going to break out and become, you know, sort of actual authentic people is hard to see. And so that's just something that, from the sort of you know, the, the sort of demise of Malcolm, I think is quite sad is the prospect we might not have more interesting people come into politics and mm. uh, sort of give their time to the country. Um, we mentioned it a few times and throughout the interview, the question of faith and your Catholic background and I suppose Jesuit uh, formation as a, as a man, not as a um, member of an order or anything. Um, but yeah, can you reflect on the importance of faith in your life? It's obviously very, very important to me in the sense of, you know, I believe in God. Um, I believe in yeah, like all Christians, I believe in Christ's redeeming mission. Um, I believe in you know, that we die and we go to our, our judgments and you know, we'll be held to account for our lives. So I believe that. Um, and I've always believed that. Um, it's very important to me because I found in life it has not always been an easy thing. Um, I certainly found, particularly when I was in Iraq, my faith grew enormously. And um, I mean, it was always there, but certainly developed. And uh, I mean, proximity to death and dying does do that to you. Mm. Um, uh, I think a lot of people's, I think, you know, the joke was, you know, uh, you know I think uh, the, the, the RCIA, which is the Catholic program for new Catholics to come on board. I think in Iraq, we had the world's youngest and largest um, RCIA program in the world right. is in Iraq because, um, you know, the prospect of death and dying was, was there. Um, th- for me, it's very, very important um, to me personally. Um, I think... If you go, you have to go through, I think in some respects, and it, and it sort of refines you. I mean, the, the proverb of you know, iron sharpens iron is, is one that I like, but just the idea that you, you learn a lot about yourself through struggle and through suffering. It's not, the, it's not the absence of God. It's just that there's something you're being taught through it and it allows you to put sufferings and tragedies into 
some perspective. And I was very fortunate. Both my parents were, both my late parents were people of great faith um, and right up to the end. And um, I was when they were passing. And, and you get a certain comfort from that, I guess, on a human level, but also on a spiritual level that um, God, God cares. Um, so I sort of, it's hard to sort of explain to people in a way. I, 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 I tire of people go, well, my faith is a private matter. Well, you're, you're a public person, so it's not a private matter. You're actually, you're a public person and it's going to come out at some stage. And also sure. people are entitled to know yeah. what powers you. And um, for me, it's, it's, it's very important. Um, and I, I would, what, whatever your faith is, whatever animates you, Jew, Christian, Muslim, whatever, Hindu, um, it's, it's something separate to you that, that drives you and also holds you to account in a way. Um, so, you know, I, one of the most painful things to me as a Catholic has been, we've had, you know, 20, 20 or 30 years of just the most horrific abuse stories. You know, the ultimate betrayals of trust, I have to be very careful about what I say here because I was a, I was, I was a counsel in the Royal Commission, but it was just terrible for Catholics, you know, what the what terrible sins and misdeeds were done in the name of the faith. That's something every Catholic carries as a mm. cross. It's just, it's just terrible. Uh, I went on the ABC and I just said that. Look, I said, I wish I could say something more than just, it's shameful. It's absolutely appalling. Every Catholic feels that shame um, all the time. But at the same time, um, everyone, including a faith, is not, should not be judged on its worst day or necessarily on its best. But, um, for me, it's, it's very, very important to me. Uh, but for me, I guess having been through a fair degree of grief and death and so um for me it's just very very important to me um it's very interesting it's very interesting um i often get asked well you know you're one of the few sort of public pro-life people why is that is that because you're catholic and i always say not because i'm catholic it's because i was the youngest child of of four i think in some respects i was an accidental child to older parents and so mm -hmm. when people use language like choice and convenience around birth it's very different if that could have been you that was aborted and so I have a different view of that just based on humanity rather than anything else. I'm, I'm just against death. Like I'm against euthanasia. I've, I've been around a lot of death. I'm, I always say this, but I'm sick to death of death. I mean, I like life. I think we need to have mm. more people uh, encouraged to, to, to put things in a life giving way. And I think the, the arguments through the pandemic that I've just found incredible have been between uh, the, the, the sort of libertarians who, who, whose view is, well, you know, my wallet, my choice, essentially, we've had this language of, uh, you know, we, we, choice is everything and I should be able to choose what I subsidise, including other people's lives. And it's mm. just, well, this is where the liberal, this is where the liberal experiment goes, is that, you know, with apparently the, we're with all... With liberalism or whatever It is, it is, it is. It's with the liberal... And I find it amazing no one sort of wants to have this argument because it's ugly. No one wants to know where this goes. And the, the idea that we commodify people and, you know, the idea that's also... The idea that somehow people have quote-unquote useful lives and somehow we have nothing to learn from people because they're older. It's nonsense. So you've got a lot of people who've lived and survived. They've actually got very useful things to teach you. Something I very much admire about the Asian approach, particularly, you know, the, the Buddhist and Taoist uh, um, and, you know, approaches to things is just that idea that with age comes experience and wisdom. And I think the idea that somehow we treat older people as burdens, I think is terrible. Mm. And I think it's a real indictment of our ridiculously shallow society. Yeah. And finally, uh, Gray, um, what comes across quite consistently in your work and writing is a love of patria or Australia and how that unifying theme ought to override, you know, minor differences between us as citizens. So I was hoping you could expand a bit on this and maybe speak about what Australia means to you um, and your family history, you know, in terms of the work you do in the law, your national service, uh, but also your concern for the political sphere in Australia too and your 
fellow citizens? Thank you. Uh, that's a great question. I've I've been waiting for someone to ask me this question for a while. Actually, no no one ever has. And <laughs> um and, and seriously, it's a great question. Um, well, I mean, I'm I'm first generation Australian, and so I, I guess I, I, yeah, I obviously served Australia. I love Australia. I was prepared to give my life for Australia. So, you know, I, I love Australia and I love my home. And um, home for me is the Southern Highlands of New South Wales. So yeah, it's where my parents are buried. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm a very sentimental person. And so um, I'm a strong believer in, perhaps perhaps too strong a believer, but in the idea that, that at the end of the day, we all sort of inhabit this country together and we've all sort of look after each other. And I, I think that's much more important than our transitory political differences. It means that sometimes we're going to have to carve out areas where we disagree and just let each other live. And none of us try to win over the other person, but we accept actually that's the way they do things and they have to be able to do their things. And same way, I, you know, I want to be able to do my things. So we give a certain respect to each other's differences. Mm. But I, I love the idea of Australia as a country, which everyone comes to. There is no one archetypal Australian. Everyone, you can be any religion. Um, you can be any you know, background, ethnicity, whatever. And you're part of the team. And so I like that. I like this. I have a very big vision of Australia. I've always been a big Australian. I like the idea of people coming to Australia and, and almost starting their lives together. And in some way, I'm very, very grateful for all those Australians, past generations who have built the country, defended the country, who gave so much for the country. I would like everyone to sort of be very appreciative of them. I also want people to realise that the greatest compliment anyone pays to you is to literally risk their life to come and join your country. It must be yeah. a pretty good country that people risk their lives to want to come here must be pretty amazing and you should be very proud of that it's a it's a great it's a source of great pride and so i have this sort of great love of australia and i would like the country to be a bigger country and i would like everyone to sort of feel part of that country i really don't care about the political side i want everyone to feel part of this but it's not some sort of chest thumping nationalism or anything it's a, i don't know it's a more reflective kind of it, it is notion it is. or idea of australia you know yeah. it's, nice. it, it, it's, it's a chest it's a chest thumping openness to the fact that a lot of people we want everyone to be part of the team and to feel that they are being, that they are included and that they're part of the team. And that uh, I always tell people this, when I was in Iraq, I had in my, you know, in my little living area, I had, um, I had a Muslim, I had a, uh, I had a, I had a Muslim officer, who was a very good friend. I had a devout Anglican. I had one guy who was absolutely sure he didn't believe in anything. Um, I had a Latin mass Catholic. I had a whole group of people like, and that's just normal. Like that's the norm in Australia. Like that's, that's normal. That's not some sort of, you know, you know, story script, you know, um, cliche. That's Australia. Like everyone, like the, that's why I think the military gets not enough praise. It's actually a great little melting pot for people from all different backgrounds. And, yeah, it is. you know, and, and I think it's a great microcosm of Australia that actually we are actually a remarkably harmonious society. And the thing that annoys me is people harping on about differences. And so for instance, it absolutely infuriates me whenever yeah, anyone attacks Muslims. It annoys me, not just because I'm a believer and so on, but it just infuriates me. It's like, you don't understand it's one of the world's great religions. I said, it's, it's brought strength to a lot of people. Um, it gives meaning to a lot of people. Um, um, they respect, you know, everyone focuses as if somehow every, there's somehow some necessary connection between, you know, the Khomeini's or the ISIS or whatever. And the average it's just the greatest victims of extremist Muslims are actual Muslims. I mean, they're the greatest victims of them. And I, and I often say this to people, particularly, you know, I think Christians are very good on this, but if there are any sort of dissidents, so I say there, there are just tens of thousands of Christians in the Middle East who are only alive because the Muslim brothers and sisters took them in and looked after them. I mean, mm. you know, this, this idea that somehow we have to have some sort of war religions or religions, it's just ridiculous. I mean, Australia is a, a remarkably successful constitutional state 
that is you know, incredibly ethnically diverse, incredibly religiously pluralist, why you would want to tamper with this or inflame tensions or upset people is just beyond me. So um, I guess in the sense, if I have a generally conservative view, I want to conserve that. I want to conserve that achievement. I want to keep that country together. You know, and, I, and for me, it's just my own personal thing. I served that country. I protected that country. I was willing to give my life for that country. I want to hold that country together. I want us all to be part of the same team. I want us all to be looked after. I, I don't want people, I don't want, I, I want people to feel that they're included and that, that they matter and that, that people care and that other people care about them. That's, that's what I want. There's an inherent so, dignity to each. And there's an inherent dignity to that. And, yeah. I, and very much, you mentioned my family. I very much got that from my parents. My, um, my late mother was a great, um, you know, very conservative woman. My great mother was interesting sort of uh, mixture of contradictions in some respects. I mean, my mother had gone through the sixties, but I always make the point to people, you know, my mother liked Joan Baez, you know, who you mm. know, she was, she was practiced, but she was never into drugs, never into immorality. You know, she was always very modest, etc. My mother kind of likes that. And, um, and you know, that sort of, I got that from my mother, my mother, when she in the seventies, I didn't realize this, but she was very, very strongly you know, supportive of say Vietnamese boat people and the like, and, you know, bringing them in and, you know, and things like that. So I got, I guess, from yeah, you, know, you, you're all you're all influenced by your parents, but I was very heavily influenced by that. And my my father, who though he my late father, though he was a very um, very conservative person. I mean, if you were doing this podcast with my late father, it'd be very different answers in some respects. But my father was a was a ridiculously soft touch. I mean, my my I can remember as a child going into my as you do as the youngest um, going into my father's study, and there were forever envelopes on the floor that would be mailed out through his office. And just, every charity known to man, my father gave to. It was mm. a notoriously soft touch because my mm. father at the end of the day. Yeah, he'd grown up with stories from his parents about the depression in, in, in Britain during, and just how terrible it was and how proud the family was. And they've, in my father's family business, they'd kept everyone on the payroll. Whatever they had to do, they, they kept, even if the family suffered a bit, they kept everyone on the payroll because it was a family, yep. a bigger family. And I guess I sort of inherited that unconscious. I didn't realise it until I started writing how much I'd inherited it. But just that idea that we, we have an amazing achievement here in Australia. I think Australians are, if anything, not proud enough of an amazing achievement of a constitutional state power transfers peacefully the rule of law is observed we have people of all different ages backgrounds ethnicities religions living harmoniously together that's amazing by mm. world terms that is just amazing and we should want to hold on to that with every fiber of our being and to the degree that anyone tries to separate any of us that person should be the enemy of all of us and that's that's my one place i think we should all be in together and it's a wonderful note to end on so Gray Connolly, thank you so much for your time this afternoon i really appreciate it it's been a wonderful uh, time chatting to you so yeah have a, have a lovely afternoon Pleasure. Anytime. Always happy. And thank you very much for having me on. No worries. Thank you.